I am uh, Katie. I attend here at Maple Grove Covenant Church. I'm on the leadership team, and it's my privilege this morning to share with you and partner with Craig in bringing the word to you. And since Craig opened up the conversation about what did we do over Christmas, I married into a family that does a candlelight Christmas Eve dinner. And so we were all out at Kevin's parents, and then Sunday, or then Christmas Day, was low-key for our kids, and we still have one Christmas left to celebrate. So would you uh, begin this morning as I open us up in prayer as we look at the word? Father God, thank you for this morning and for your word. Thank you that your word is alive and active, and you have something in your word for us this morning. So as we look at it, we ask that you would open our eyes to see more of you, and that you would open our ears, that we would hear you, that you would encourage us, and that you would challenge us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. This week, I found myself with all of the other festivities that were happening for the holidays on a school bus, chaperoning for a fifth grade field trip to the Minnesota Zoo. Now, picture this, sitting on a bus full of kids, three per seat, 10, 11, 12 years old, Imagine the volume and the noise in the bus, and they are excited because it's two days before break, and we are driving out of the school parking lot, and as we drive out of the parking lot, we get on the road, we're barely out of the parking lot, and what do I hear from the back of the bus but one child saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Who hasn't heard that? Who hasn't asked that? Are we there yet? Kids ask it parents wish we were there. Travelers plan their trip from point A to B based upon the destination of getting there. We are a people who naturally look for the destination because the destination is connected with some expectation that we have about what it's going to be like or what it's, how great it's going to be or how different it's going to be. So even spiritually, I think we ask the same question. As we move from point A to B, you know, here I am spiritually, but I want to be over there. I might not say it out loud, but I ask myself, we ask ourselves, are we there yet? But what if it's not about getting from point A to B? What if it's not about the destination? What if it's more about the journey and what God has for us on the journey? If you were here for the Christmas Eve service, Pastor Craig talked about the wise men being on a journey, seeking the Lord. What if it's not about the destination? Take, for example, the Israelites. The Israelites in the Old Testament, we find them in the wilderness going from point A to point B. Point A was Egypt. Point A was a place of slavery, and their destination was the land of Canaan, point B, which was the promised land. But for 40 years, they wandered. It was a trip that really only needed to take two weeks. And they wandered before they got to point B. And what did they learn when they were on the journey? Instead of it being about the destination on the journey, They learned things about God they had never known before. God had led them by a fire and cloud by day. The Israelites had never experienced that before. God had 
provided for them, had filled them up, literally filled them up with manna and quail and giving them fresh water to drink in this barren desert for 40 years. And God was preparing them for how he was going to use them. You see, don't get me wrong, the promised land where the Israelites were headed, that was an important place. That was a place that God had promised them that they would end up. But their preoccupation with the destination, their focus on getting there, their focus on grumbling when they knew they weren't there, caused them blinders to miss what God was doing on the journey. And today in our passage, I believe the Apostle Paul has a word for us, a word of encouragement, a word of challenge for us that are on the spiritual journey, because we're all on a spiritual journey. So let's think about the book of Romans for a moment, and let's just have a little bit of background here. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul when he was on his third missionary journey, and Paul was a man who knew a lot about journeys. And as he was on this journey, he writes to this town, the city of Rome, that was known at that time to be the ends of the earth. The gospel had reached that far, and he had heard about the church in Rome. And the church in Rome that he wrote to was a, it was, it was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews that had ended up in Rome for various reasons. And unlike Jerusalem, Rome did not have a central temple or a place to worship, like we come here this morning to worship. Instead, the church in Rome met in house churches, maybe similar to our community groups, where 10 people met in this house, maybe 20 met in this house. And Paul would write this letter, and they would read this letter to one another and pass it around. And as they did that, they would gleam this challenge and the encouragement that Paul had for them. Now, Paul had never visited Rome, but he knew some things about Rome. He knew some people who were from Rome that his path had crossed with. And some of the things that he learned about the church in Rome was that they had a deep faith. They had a faith and obedience that when you read in the first chapter of Romans, we find out that word of their faith and obedience had spread all along the world. People knew. They had a reputation. They had a good reputation. But Paul also knew that the church had some struggles, like all churches do. And some of the struggles was this temptation to be conformed to the culture of the world, to be squeezed by the messages of the world. There was also some relational tension in the church. Um, One of the relational tensions was between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews felt like faith was for them and not for Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't follow the religious rules. And so there was this tension about who was better and whose spiritual gift was better. And there was this judgment that would go out amongst those that were um, meeting together. And there was some who caused some division. And all of this happened in a context when there was this Roman Empire that was making rules and taxes, and the Church of Rome wrestled with, you know, what? why do we have to submit to this authority? So here you have a church that has a good reputation and a church that has some, you know, things going on and questions that they're trying to figure out. And they're trying to make sense of how do we live our faith out in this context? How do we truly be transformed, changed from the inside out, 
so that we can follow our holy God in a magnificent, you know, fruit-bearing kind of way? How can we be salt and light? So as the church had some questions, and they were asking questions about these specific issues that they're wrestling with, Paul writes to them and suggests that maybe you should ask some different questions. So this morning, if you turn with me to Romans 15, verse 13, I'd like to take a moment to look at this. If you use the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find Romans 15, verse 13 on page 1125. And as we look at this passage, keep in mind that the book of Romans is divided into two parts. The first part of the book of Romans is all about teaching and explanation of some basic truths about Christianity and faith. And in the last half of the book, it's about how do we live our faith out. And so Paul comes towards the end of this book and this chapter in this section, and he says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a luxury, I think, when we're looking at God's word, because right now many of you have a Bible in front of you. Let's keep in mind that the church in Rome had one letter that Paul had written, and it was a long letter, and this passage would have been easily missed. This prayer that Paul had for the church in Rome would have been easily missed. And as they shared it here, then the letter got passed to another house church, and they would read it there. But Paul had a prayer for the church. And his prayer talked about the God of hope filling them up with joy and peace as they trusted in him. And so I'd like us to just sort of take a moment and look at this passage. And I'm actually going to invite you to read it with me. It's on the screen behind me. And as we read it, just sort of notice what words pop out to you. What, what do you sort of resonate as we read this together? So let's read this verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, I think in this prayer, Paul is inviting the church in Rome to ask a different set of questions. Instead of asking questions about the destination, are we there yet? I think Paul's inviting the church to ask some questions about their spiritual journey, to notice what God is doing while they walk their faith out in a day-to-day basis. And so Paul opens up this prayer and he begins with a description of who God is. Who is God? God is the God of hope. May the God of hope, that's Paul's view of God, that God is a God of hope. Now our view of God plays an important part in how we live out our life and the values that we believe in and the decisions that we make. In fact, In 2006, there were some sociologists who decided to do this research on people's views of God. So they put together this survey, they did this national survey, and they they suggested there were four views of God that any one of us might adhere to. The first view is that God is authoritarian, that God is, the second one, benevolent, loving, compassionate. The third view is that God is uh, distant, far off, not involved with us. And the fourth view is that God is critical or judging. 
So those were the four views, and as you took the survey, the researchers, the participants that took the survey were able, based upon their score, to learn what their view of God was. Now, you might be interested to know that a third of the participants, large study nationally done, a third of them felt as though God was authoritarian, that God was an angry God, that God had a scowl on his face, that God was looking down, waiting to slap your hand when you did something wrong. Then there was a quarter of the participants who took this survey that thought just the opposite, that God was benevolent, that he was loving, that he was caring, that he would, he would pull you in and have you sit on his lap and extend compassion and grace and forgiveness. Another quarter felt God was distant. That quarter of people who felt God was distant could easily say, okay, God created the world, but after he created the world, he went off somewhere in the distance, and he really doesn't do anything. He's not really active. He's, he's sort of just out there. I mean, maybe he's looking at us. Maybe he's watching us. Maybe he really doesn't even care. And so, and the rest of them thought that God was critical and judging. So three-quarters of this population had this negative view of God. And only a quarter felt as if God had a positive input, benevolent, loving kind of character. Well, when you look at Paul's description of God, God of hope, we might put that into the benevolent category. I don't know if there's another category, but Paul would definitely not steer towards God being distant. He wouldn't steer towards God being angry. He wouldn't steer towards God being critical and judging. Rather, God is this God of hope. God is the source of hope. God is the foundation of hope. God is the creator and author of hope. And what I find interesting is that Paul could have easily started this prayer out in many different ways. Think about how you pray when you start out. Some of us start out, Father. Some of us start out, Lord God. Some of us, I mean, how do you start your prayer out? Paul is starting his out with God of hope. But he could have said, God of grace, God of mercy, God of forgiveness, God of love. But he specifically chose, and we know Paul to be an author who specifically chooses his words very carefully, God of hope. So why did he, to the church of Rome, direct them to the God of hope? Well, I think the answer lies in a cultural reason that would be hard for us to understand today, a lot easier for the church in Rome to understand in that day. You see, the church in Rome lived in a culture in a foreign city that was ruled by a Roman emperor, in fact, Nero. Nero had just come into power. He was 16 years old. Later in the Roman history, we're going to find that Nero was one of the greatest emperors to cause persecution for the Christians. And as the church lived and existed in this culture that had little tolerance for Christianity, it also was within a polytheistic culture, meaning a culture that believed in many gods and many goddesses. In fact, the Roman culture borrowed from Greek mythology many of the gods that they believed in. And so you would see a city full of temples and statues and idols for worshiping other gods. In fact, One of the gods that you're going to see here is depicted on this coin behind me on the screen. This is the goddess of hope. 
Rome had a goddess that they worshipped called the goddess of hope. Now we see why Paul might have said, may the god of hope. This Roman goddess is, is pictured in this picture as a young maiden who with a long robe and her left hand would hold up the, the skirt, the bottom of the robe, and in her right hand she'd be holding this, this flower or a bud that was about to flower, representing the good fortune or the hope that was to come. And people would worship her in Rome because they wanted their land to be fruitful or they wanted to have good fortune to come onto them. They would look to the goddess of hope specifically around birthdays and uh, weddings because they wanted to bestow a blessing on those that were family members that hope would come to them. Now, it, with this cultural backdrop of the goddess of hope, you have, God, you have Paul over here saying, here is the god of hope. The god of hope is not some picture on a coin that we might find. The god of hope is not some statue. In fact, in Rome, there was a temple to the goddess of hope. Now, here's what I find ironic. The goddess of hope twice was struck by lightning. That does not seem like good fortune to me. And they rebuilt it, and it got struck down again. The god of hope, the real God of hope that Paul points to, cannot be impacted by lightning. It can withstand anything that comes its way because the God of hope is bigger, greater, more foundational than some goddess that people might worship. And this temple was located, it's believed, near the market. So on a daily basis, a regular basis, when you went to get your vegetables and fruits and the things that you wanted to eat for dinner, you would likely pass by this temple. So Paul says to the church in Rome, may the God of hope, may the real God of hope, may the real place from which hope comes from, the foundation, the source, the author of hope, may that be the God that you look to. Not some idol that was made by human hands. And so while the church lived in this culture that was tempted to be squeezed by the messages that good fortune would come to you if you followed the right rules, good fortune would come to you if you were obedient in your faith, instead of being squeezed by those messages and conformed to that, Paul says, ask the question, church, how do you believe in God? Who do you see God to be? What's your view of God? Is he the God of hope? That's one of the questions that Paul challenges the church with Rome with. And after he talks about and describes and suggests that, you know, our view of God makes a difference, he then goes and talks about what God does in his prayer. He talks about the description of what God is doing. So when you think about what we believe in God impacts what we think God is doing, this is where Paul's logic makes sense. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And as you're thinking about this, you know, if I believe God is to be an authoritarian God, if I think God is angry and watching and waiting to slap my hand when I do something wrong, I'm likely going to think all of God's actions are going to be disciplined or punitive in some way. If I believe God is distant, far off in the future, I'm likely going to believe God is not going to be involved in my life at all. So what does it even matter? I'm going to be hopeless. 
And yet, for the God of hope, in Paul's prayer, what do we see him doing? We don't see him sitting off in the distance, not involved. We don't see him waiting and looking down and with a scowl on his face. No, we see God in a way that he is active. We see God in a way that he's alive. We even can picture him being close to us because what he's doing for those who trust in him is he's filling them up. He is taking all of the good that he has, flowing out of his hope, and he's filling up the believers in the church in Rome with joy and peace. Now, sometimes that's a lot easier for us to say than to actually feel like we're being filled up. But here's the interesting thing. This whole picture of being filled up, I mean completely filled up, not partially, is a verb or a picture that we see often in Paul's letters. To the church in Ephesus, Paul says that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. To the church in the Philippi, uh, to the Philippians, he says, "May the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ may you be filled with that." And to Colossians, he says, "May you be filled with the knowledge of God's will." I mean, these are all things that we want to have in our life. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be filled with righteousness. We want to know God's will. And to the church in Rome, he he thinks about them never visiting them, and thinks the prayer that I want to give for them is that they would be filled with joy and peace. Not worldly joy, not worldly peace. Worldly joy and peace that might come from money or possessions or titles or some sense of power, but true God-given joy, this deep sense of contentment that regardless of what my circumstances are, I am okay because there's a God that looks out for me. And this God-given sense of peace, that even though there might be some relational tension here, that the God of hope can come between that relational tension, like, like oil lubricating a squeaky wheel, and I might experience relational harmony, that I might experience the sense of shalom and peace with one another. And so we see in Paul's prayer that he's pointing the church in Rome to a different question. As they wrestle with division and passing judgment and and trying to figure out how to live their faith out, living in community, Paul asks this question, how is God filling you up? How is God filling you up? Because if you believe your view of God is that there's a God of hope, there's something coming out of God that's very hopeful that's going to fill us up. And in this prayer, he says that you might be filled with joy and peace. And I wonder if he was even thinking about the passage in Galatians when Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. The sense that God is going to fill you up. So Paul prays for the church. And he talks about how and who God is and what he does. But he also has this conjunction in there that says, so that. Now, this is a pretty, I was taught in seminary that this conjunction, so that, is sort of a, like a hinge door, like a screen door. And it's the hinge that you want to see what's on both sides of it to make sense of it and to understand it. And the whole purpose of Paul saying, so that, was so his readers would pick up on the relationship between the God of hope, 
who fills us up with joy and peace, and how that's related to the fact that we might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a relationship between God as the foundation and the author and the source of hope and how that flows in and through us so that we might overflow. Billy Graham once said that God gave us two hands. Take your hands and put them in front of you and look at your hands. Okay, you have two hands. The left hand was for receiving, Billy Graham said, and the, and the right one was for giving. God of hope fills me up. I receive it with my left hand, and then I extend it, and I overflow, and I give out that same hope, that same joy, that same peace to those that are around me. This week, Unbroken. How many of you have heard of the movie Unbroken? How many of you saw the movie? It came out this week. So Unbroken is, there's a lot of talk about Unbroken as a movie. It's this story about a uh, a hero, really. It's a magnificent story that tells the life of a former Olympian and a World War II prisoner of war, Louis Zamparini. And in this story, we find out that, uh, that it's a story of survival, and it's a story of resilience. As uh, Zamparini lives through this dangerous plane crash, ends up for over a month, stranded in the ocean, is eventually picked up, but it's by the Japanese military army, and he's taken to a prisoner of war camp and then is sort of used as a punching bag um, in a very harsh way. It's a story of hope when you think about it. It's a story of hope as you think about this man who faced these horrendous conditions completely outside of his control, and yet he continued to believe that there would be a rescue for him to happen. Um, And as you think about it, this is a great story, but the problem is the story in the movie does not tell you the rest of the story. Uh, After he returns to America, that's where the movie stops, right when he returns to America. After he returned to America, he was um, struggling. He was struggling with uh, post-traumatic stress. He was struggling with nightmares, alcoholism, Lots of different vices that he was trying to, you know, kind of soothe, you know, the effects of what he had gone through. And his wife invited him to a Billy Graham crusade. And with reluctance, he went, and one day he actually walked out, and the second day he might have walked out. But I think it was the third day in 1949 when he decided to stay and hear what Billy Graham had to say. And it was on that day that he met the Lord, the God of hope. I mean, he had hope when he was, you know, on this raft in the ocean. He had hope when he was in this prisoner war camp. But it was in this tent of revival that he met the God of hope for the first time. And as he met the God of hope, God filled him up with joy and peace, and it overflowed in his life. Because what we know about Zamperini after his conversion is that he ended up being Uh, inspirational speaker. He would go around. Billy Graham actually helped him to go around, and he preached about forgiveness, about God's forgiveness, and how God's hope would move through you so you could overflow with forgiveness. And what he's really well known for is when he was invited back to speak in Japan, he had the opportunity to extend forgiveness to some of the very guards, the Japanese guards that had been in the prisoner of war camps. 
Here is an example of someone who's overflowing because the God of hope who filled him with love and joy and peace allowed him to overflow with hope, with forgiveness, with love for people who had even beaten him. And Paul is writing this, obviously, Paul the Apostle had no idea of this story, which is a contemporary story, but to the church in Rome saying, you too can be used by God. In fact, church in Rome, you are, what we know about the church in Rome, they had a lot of knowledge about who God was. And Paul is saying, how is the God of hope going to fill you in such a way that you're going to overflow? that you're going to be used in ways that your faith practically will impact others. And so the question that comes out of that is, how does God want to use you as we think about it? So whenever Paul wrote to a church, he desired two things. The first was to encourage the church in Rome, and the second was to challenge the church in Rome. Any church he wrote to, that, those were his two goals. And there might have been other reasons that he wrote, but in this one-sentence prayer that's really easy to miss, we find both of those things. We find encouragement and we find hope. So for the church in Rome, the encouragement from this prayer is that hope can be found in God. The encouragement is that once you are separated from Christ without hope, but now you have the hope of eternal life. Now there is something you can stand on and know is a foundation so you can confidently expect God to show up. It's also an encouragement to the church in Rome because they find that God is active, which is very different than the culture that they lived in because of these gods and goddesses of Rome. There was this sense that God was not active. In fact, God couldn't say anything. He was just, these gods with a small g were just statues or temples. But here, God is active. God is involved in your life. God is, God is paying attention and wanting to fill you up. And the challenge, along with the encouragement that Paul brings to this church, is to ask different questions. To ask questions that focus less on themselves and more on God to ask questions that help them reflect on what is God doing in your midst? How does God want to use you? Questions like, how do you see God? What is your view of God? Questions like, how is God filling you up? And how is God going to use you? So when I think about application, we are a people who look for the destination. Because the destination, whether it's geographic or spiritually, is about some expectation of what we hope things will be like. Even spiritually, we focus on this destination as we move from point A to point B. Even New Year's, the talk about New Year's resolutions, is based upon this question of the destination. What do you want to be like? What, how do you want to be better? Where do you want to have your exercise taking place? You know, what do you not want to eat? It's all about this destination point. But what if it's not? What if spiritually it's not about the destination? What if it's about the journey? What if it's about what's happening between point A and point B? And that's where our application comes today, because out of this passage, 
that says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you might overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an individual and a corporate application for us. So corporately as a church, what's the application that we can find? Well, this prayer for the church in Rome is also a prayer for us today. This prayer that was meant for the church in Rome is a prayer that you and I can pray. If you read my last uh, email update from the leadership team, I invited us to consider praying for the church on a regular basis. I suggested 2 o'clock every day. It could be any time, but what if we prayed this prayer for Maple Grove Covenant Church? How would this prayer change us from the inside out? How would this prayer help us change our questions? Or maybe you want to be a part of the prayer that's going to be happening and there's sign-up out there at the kiosk for in January for the 48 hours. Maybe we can incorporate this prayer for Maple Grove Covenant Church, but also for ourselves individually. Wherever we might be at on our spiritual journey, the encouragement and the challenge that Paul had for the church in Rome is the same challenge that he has for us today. In regards to encouragement, maybe this morning you need to be reminded that God is a God of hope, that God is a God of grace and of love and of mercy, and not a God who's angry, not a God who's judging, not a God who's distant. Maybe the encouragement comes in the fact that God is there filling us up. God is there to fill you up. I don't know what you need this morning. If you need joy or peace, maybe you need patience. We don't want to pray for patience. Maybe you need a sense of uh, endurance or perseverance. God is there ready to fill you up. But there's also a challenge along with the encouragement that Paul has for us. And the challenge is how might we ask different questions about our faith? How might we ask questions about our view of God? I mean, this is what I would invite you to as we think about the new year. Maybe instead of New Year's resolutions, thinking about these questions, what is your view of God? Or how is God filling you up? Just, just stopping for a moment and noticing that God has been faithful to show up in your life. Or maybe you're wondering and need the challenge of asking the question, how does God want to use me? Because God wants to use you. And you might be sitting there thinking, who, me? No, God wants to use you. Because it's the God of hope who fills you and me up while we trust in him with all joy and peace so that we might overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Oh, God of hope, God of mercy, God of love, God of grace, It's easy for us sometimes to not see you as those good and perfect things, to not see you as holy, to not see you as the one who is for us. But we rejoice and we glorify you this morning that you are a God of hope and that you are a God who is not distant and far off and not caring, but actually very close to us very interested in filling us up with what we need. Sometimes that filling up is like manna and quail for the Israelites, and sometimes it's 
about joy and peace and attributes that allow your light to shine. But we thank you that you are a God who fills us up and that you are a God who wants to use us, that you are a God who wants us to overflow, to be salt and light in this world for your glory. And so we thank you. Thank you for encouraging us and challenging us this morning. And as we continue to worship, Lord, we acknowledge that all the gifts that we have come from you because you are a God of good gifts. And so as we take our offering this morning, we pray, Lord, that we would just give back to you what you've already given us and that you would use that to overflow for your grace and for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen.